This is part 12 that we're about to do in our series, Startled by Grace. Um, we've heard four or five times along the way testimonies from members in our body who've just shared how God's grace has shown up in their lives. If you've missed some of those, I'd encourage you to go back and listen. Um, it's been awesome watching the bravery and the courage and the humility of my friends to get up and just share their lives and share their stories. And um, it's, been, it's been powerful. Um, we heard from our friend Jeremy Jean last Sunday, another local pastor that came and spoke on Father's Day and just did a great job unpacking grace and specifically talking about forgiveness uh, when we need it and when we need to give it away. And so this morning... Um, we're going to kind of just wrap up everything we've covered. You know, we've talked about um, grace that sees us through a storm. We've talked about God's grace that just shows up in day-to-day moments in our lives. Um, we've talked about grace that helps us just endure when things aren't changing for a while. And so this morning, we're going to finish by talking about grace being available for all. Grace for all. And so we're going to look at this through the lens of King David. And two specific stories in his life, a story where, where he showed grace um, to what I would call an outsider, and also a story in his life where God showed him grace as an insider who had really blown it. Because the truth is, we are all in need of grace. And I find in my life, I'm in need of God's grace often. The truth is daily. And so we're going to jump into this together this morning. Um, I'll tell you up front, I'm going to read some verses along the way, but um, just kind of for your own growth, reading, understanding of these stories, these can be found in 2 Samuel chapter 9, where we're going to start this morning, and then the second story we're going to unpack is in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and so you can dig into those um, on your own. So let me pray for us one more time, and then we're going to jump right into this. Father, I thank you for your love and for your grace. God, I, I pray this would be real to us this morning. God, I, I pray that this, um, the stories from David's life would not be like a fairy tale to us. God, that we would see the humanness of the people in these stories. These are real people who walk through real things. And they needed you desperately and you showed up. And God, I pray that that would teach us, encourage us this morning. It would remind us of your grace. God, that we would, we would by faith trust in your grace, in your presence when we're in need. And God, that we would cooperate with you. That we would be people that would give grace away. Even to the ones that are hardest to give it to, God, that we would give grace away. God, may these verses come alive to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, I want to recap the first story for you. This is, this is the story of David and Mephibosheth. So you're going to have a spelling test after church this morning to see who can spell Mephibosheth. It might even be tough to figure out who can pronounce it. I, you know, I struggle with it. Um, David and Mephibosheth. So let me give you some background. So David becomes the king of Israel after... Years of being a shepherd boy, he fights Goliath, um, he's serving King Saul. King Saul eventually turns on him because he sees David as a threat, tries to kill him multiple times. David goes into hiding. David has, has opportunity along the way 
um, to seek his own vengeance on Saul. Saul's life is in his very hands a couple of times, and he shows mercy to Saul. And um, David is very close friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. They're like best buds. And so over the course of time, Saul and his son, Jonathan, are, are ultimately killed in battle against their enemies. And David ascends to the throne. And he's now spent years um, fighting and establishing the kingdom of Israel, um, keeping at bay their enemies and just establishing some order. He's, he's been a, a warrior and a king now for some years. And so he's had some success, some success, some things are beginning to settle down, although there was um, warring almost through his entire kingship. But things are settling down. And so David kind of finds himself sitting back and considering everything that's transpired over all these years. And he begins to, to think back on his friend Jonathan and on King Saul, whom he loved. And he decides, I want to do something kind in honor of Saul and Jonathan. And so he commissions some of his people to find out, is there anybody left from Saul's house that I can be kind to? See, he didn't hear about a need that he wanted to go meet. He proactively went looking for someone to show kindness to. I mean, that's a really great starting point for grace. Let's go looking for ways to give it away. And what I find interesting is, yes, David was thinking about his friend, but he was also thinking about his enemy. And he was willing to honor both his friend Jonathan and his enemy Saul to give grace. And so he hears about Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, and decides, I, I want to bless him. Um, and so they find this, this, this young man, don't know exactly his age. He's lame, he's crippled, he's living just out in the desert, basically. And David sends word that he's to be brought to his house. Now think about this for a minute. If you are the relative of the former king who was trying to kill the current king, and you've now been hiding in the desert, and King David has guys come knocking on your door saying, it's time to come meet the king, what emotions do you think you're feeling at that moment? Well, we know what emotions he was feeling because when he showed up, David, the first thing he said to him is fear not. He was terrified. And so he comes to David's house and he finds kindness and generosity and love. And so David restores all of Saul's former lands and possessions to Mephibosheth and gives him a place at his table and shows this incredible act of grace towards the broken, forgotten, fearful Mephibosheth who's in the desolate place. And so we're going we're gonna to kind of, that was sort of the big picture view. We're going to kind of go in now with a, a microscope and just look at a few pieces of this story. And my hope is that we'll be encouraged a little bit this morning about God's heart towards the outsider. And, and I just have to say to you this morning for just a minute before we go too much further, I, my hope this morning is that you will be able to see that you're an outsider. Yeah, I, think, I think for a lot of us that have, are in the family of God and we've been there for a while, we can tend to forget where we come from. 
And kind of the first step to showing grace towards outsiders are remembering that we were there. We were lost and broken and alone, and God found us and rescued us and loves us. And now we too join him in reaching out to the outsider. So the first thing that we see where grace longs to be shown to the outsider is that grace longs to be demonstrated. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Grace longs to be demonstrated. It, it is looking, it is searching for someone that is in need. It longs to extend kindness. See, David is a, is a tangible, specific story here, but it echoes the heart of God. Jesus, in sharing about the heart of the Father, told this parable about a master who had prepared a banquet. And he invited his friends and none of them wanted to show up. They kept making excuses. And so finally the master gets fed up and he says, look, I'm just wanting to bless people with this amazing banquet. So I want you to go find anyone and everyone who could come. And so in Luke chapter 14, Jesus is continuing on in this story. And in verse 21, the servant comes back to the master to tell him, all of your friends have rejected your invitation. And so the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there's room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Noticed Jesus' heart. He's not on a recruiting mission for the best and brightest. He's saying, I'm looking for the broken, the rejected, the ones nobody wants, the forgotten. Go find them. The poor, crippled, blind, and lame. The people who are out on the edges of town that no one wants to see, that people kind of walk by like this. Go find them and tell them there's a place at my table. There's room for them. This is the heart of God, to, to show kindness to the unlovely and the unwanted, to the discarded and forgotten. That's his heart. In fact, grace, it is for all, but I think it's especially for the unlovely. I mean, if we take an honest look at the life of Jesus, this little parable isn't like one little moment in time. It's, it's a picture of what he spent his life doing. He was comfortable with sinners and sinners were comfortable with him. He's looking up at, you know, Zacchaeus up in the tree. Buddy, I'm coming to your house today. The guy who had been rejected by his town and city. I'm going to come hang with you, buddy. That's God's heart. The forgotten, the unlovely. And we see this very specifically in this story of Mephibosheth. So a couple interesting things about this guy. He was, he was crippled and he was lame. Now, the way he became crippled and lame is when Saul, when, when the word was out that Saul had been killed and that David was ascending the throne, there was fear for his life. And so he was a young kid and his nurse picked him up and ran with him to try to hide him. 
And while running from the king, she trips and falls and lands on him. And that's how he becomes lame in both of his feet and legs and can't walk. An accident happens as he's running from the king. I don't think it's a stretch to say that our king is often misunderstood and misrepresented. And therefore, those who feel unlovely and forgotten have a tendency to run from him, thinking he has ill will towards them, when in actuality, the king had nothing but kindness in his heart. I wonder how often you and I even find ourselves in those positions. You know, what's my tendency when I've blown it? Is it to immediately turn to a loving father who longs to forgive and restore and embrace? Or is it to shrink back, to hide, to cover it, to go the other way? Our king is so often misunderstood. And when we run from him, accidents happen. And bad goes to worse. And so the unlovely, the forgotten, the fearful becomes the wounded and the injured and the lame. Guys, please don't just think about this conceptually. As the church, we're the picture of Jesus to the world. And, and we, have to, we have to ask ourselves some questions honestly. Does the world, do the, do the lost and unlovely and the broken and forgotten, do they feel drawn to us? Or do they run? Do they expect to experience rejection and unkindness? from God's people? Or do they expect a loving embrace, a welcome to the table? Now, you and I can't answer for that big picture. We can't fix and resolve how America views the church. But you and I are members of the body of Christ. And we can be the kind of people who communicate the truth about our King with our lives yeah. instead of adding to the misunderstanding of who he is. Is this making sense to you guys? I don't think it's a stretch to say most of the unlovely and broken and forgotten tend to feel like they're going to be rejected and judged by the church in America. I think that's a pretty, I don't even think that's a controversial statement. But what are we going to do about that? Are we going to accept it? Or are we going to be like David and say, I'm looking for somewhere to show kindness? There's room at my table, and I'm going to proactively look for ways to bring in and to notice the forgotten and to love them. It was the heart of David in this story. It's the heart of our king. He looks for the crippled and lame. The other thing I see about Mephibosheth, it's not just his, his personal condition, but it's where he finds himself located. He's living in a place called Lodabar. The very meaning of that name means a desolate place or a desert. In fact, it even means pastureless. Like he just, he can't find those green pastures that were promised in Psalm 23. Hungry, thirsty, alone, in the desert, desolate. He's not just personally broken, he's discarded on the edges. And so David goes and finds him. Grace goes and finds him. And he's brought in. So grace longs to be demonstrated. 
Grace is for the, for the unlovely. And finally, I love this. I already mentioned this a little bit in passing, but grace dispels fear and brings restoration. It dispels fear and brings restoration. Check this out. 2 Samuel 9, 7. When Mephibosheth shows up at David's house, shaking in his boots, wondering what's about to happen with him, David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. He immediately addresses his fear. Do not be afraid. You belong here. And then he goes beyond that. See, he isn't just saying, I'm not a threat. He's saying, you're welcome here. This is home. You belong here. This isn't just passing kindness. This is kindness that invites relationship. David says, you belong at my table. The lame living in the desolate place who is one of my enemies, come to my table and eat with me always. If you were to read through this story, on multiple occasions, the scripture makes the point that this guy found himself continually with David. We just read verse 7, you shall eat at my table always. Verse 10, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table Verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. The enemy became family. That's the heart of grace. It dispels our fear of rede rejection and restores relationship. It invites us in. Our father, the king, longs to invite the forgotten, the outsider, the unlovely, into his family, and to feast at his banqueting table. The last thing I want you to see here, this story kind of ends. Mephibosheth has now come into David's family, and in verse 13 it says, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate, how often? Somebody's awake. <laughs> he ate, how often? Always. Always, at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. I don't want to get all over your theology here, or maybe I do, I don't know. But we, we let, we get in these ridiculous debates about theology and we miss the heart of God. And here's what I mean by that. On one hand, we can get stuck in this place where we just continue to refer to ourselves for our whole Christian life as nothing but a sinner saved by grace. And I think we're missing something when we're there. We, we have a seat at the table. We're sons and daughters. We're a new creation. We're forgiven. We're saints of God. But then we forget that Paul, you know, this hero of the New Testament said, Man, I still find myself not doing what I want to do and doing what I don't want to do. And we're afraid to live in that messy middle somewhere where I'm still an imperfect, flawed person struggling through life, even though my position is I don't have to live in guilt and shame or be a defeated sinner. I'm, I'm saved, forgiven, whole, loved, a child of the King. But God covers my continual lameness. 
Mephibosheth was lame at the beginning of the story and lame at the end of the story. But the difference is he has a seat at the king's table. The grace of the king covers his lameness. I'm grateful to my pastor back home, Steve Berger, who, who taught me this about this story. It's such a cool picture. When you're up at a table, what's hidden? Your legs. His lameness was covered at the king's table. I love that. I'm still broken. I'm still flawed. I'm still a mess. But I have a seat at the table. I'm one of the king's sons, one of the king's daughters. I belong in his house and I get to feast with him all my days. God's grace extends to the outsider. And I need to see that for myself so I can receive it as a gift. And I need to participate with him and invite outsiders to have a seat at my table. Because when I become his, my table is his table. It belongs to him. And I can participate with him. I want to wrap up this portion of the story by reading a quote to you. I feel like this book is becoming a little infamous recently because our staff has been studying it together for months. And so we've quoted from it a few times. Um, this is from the book Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. And on the chapter talking about the mercy of God, he says this, and he's, he's actually coming off of talking about the book of Hebrews and David's mentioned specifically in there. Um, and he writes and he says, we must believe that God's mercy is boundless, free, and through Jesus Christ our Lord, available to us now in our present situation. I don't just have to remember back then when I was an outsider. I can know that right now in my life, His grace is present. His mercy is available right here, right now, if I need it, and I can participate in giving it away. He continues, he says, We may plead for mercy for a lifetime in unbelief, and at the end of our days be still no more than sadly hopeful that we shall somewhere, sometime receive it. This is to starve to death just outside the banquet hall in which we have been warmly invited. Or we may, if we will, lay hold on the mercy of God by faith and enter the hall and sit down with the bold and avid souls who will not allow diffidence. I had to look that up. It means shyness resulting from a lack of confidence <laughs> and unbelief to keep them from the feast of fat things prepared for them. He has a lavish table available to us if we will but choose to receive it. You are not too much of an outsider. You are not forgotten. You're not too far from his gaze. The desolate place you find yourself in, you don't have to live there forever. You can go from the desert to the banqueting hall. It's available in Jesus. God's grace is available for the outsider. Secondly this morning, our second story Grace is available for the insider. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm really grateful for this one. Because I've, I've been walking with Jesus for a long time now. And, uh, and I find myself in need of his grace pretty regularly. And so this next story is found in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Um, I'm going to recap the story a little bit and then unpack it. 
Um, if you're familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba, I will share it as gently as I can with the present company in the room that we have. Um, probably should have thought about the fact that this is a family Sunday when I was planning this message. Um, so, the story of David and Bathsheba. David has stayed home from battle. This happens only a couple of chapters in the story after Mephibosheth, by the way. David extends grace and kindness, and, and I think the grace he's about to receive, a part is because he was a guy that would give away grace. I, I think that's connected somewhat. So, here's, here's David now, um, and he's being complacent. And that's a really sure sign of trouble, just in general, when you find yourself complacent. There was a battle raging and all of his other men are off to fight and he's stayed back. And so he finds himself gazing. He sees a beautiful woman. She's married to someone else. He seeks her out, brings her to his place. Um, she goes back home. A short time later, she, he gets a text, a call, a carrier pigeon, I, I don't know. She gets a message to David that she's pregnant. Her husband is out on the battlefield where David should have been. So, does David own up to his sin and deal with it? Oh no, now the cover-up starts. And so he calls Uriah off the battlefield, invites him to come home and take a break, encourages him to go see his wife, and Uriah is an honorable guy. He's like, you know what? All my buddies are still on the battlefield line. They would love to go home to their wives. I won't do it. In instead, if you're going to make me come home... King David, I will sleep at your gate and protect you since I can't be out on the battlefield. And, if, and the crazy thing is that wasn't enough to convict David. To look at the character of that man and go, I need to make this right. So what does he do the next night? He invites him to a dinner and gets him drunk, hoping that then he'll go home to his wife. He does get drunk and he has enough state of mind to still not go, and he sleeps again at the king's gate. So David sends him back to the battlefield with a letter for the general, and that letter contains the instructions to make sure that he dies in battle. And so they go to battle. Uriah's told to be out front with some of the other guys, and basically when the fighting gets tough, a bunch of people did this. And he was left exposed and killed. And as the story comes to a close, it says Bathsheba was in mourning. And when her mourning was complete, she came home and became David's wife. And just kind of wrapped up in a nice, neat bow. I sinned. I covered it up. And now I can just move on. But that wasn't the end of the story. So, first of all, a couple of things from chapter 11 I want to encourage you to see. This is, this is kind of on the side of a warning. So this whole problem for David starts right here. And the reason I'm starting here, you know, we think of grace, we think of it often as the thing that shows up after we've sinned. Like after I've blown it, now I need God's help. But I, I just want to encourage you, God's grace is available to resist it in the first place. And there were some ways that David kind of turned away and ignored that, that got him into trouble to begin with. And so he fell for a really similar pattern that we can all fall for if we're not careful. First of all, sin caught his gaze. It's enticing. It looks good. But he could have turned away. But instead of turning away, it went from catching his gaze to then he began mulling on it and thinking about it and considering it. 
and he sent people to investigate what's the story with that lady. And so he went from gazing at it to entertaining the idea and then ultimately pursuing it. And I believe by the grace of God, he gives us opportunity to escape sin when it's enticing, when it catches our gaze, when we're being drawn to it. And even before we pursue it, his grace is there to give us the strength to move the other direction. But David pushes through all of those obstacles and he ultimately acts on it. And then he doesn't stop there. He, he does the classic human thing that we all do, the cover up. And as is often the case, the cover-up is worse than the original sin. It costs somebody their life. And he's so desperate to hide his sin that he puts somebody else's life at risk. Sin will out. It will be shouted from the rooftop. What's done in the darkness will be seen in the light. You can take it to the bank all day long. And so David thought he had it tied up in a nice, neat bow and it would just look like a normal accident had happened. And now he's just being generous to a young pregnant widow and bringing her to his house. So the story wraps up in chapter 11 with these words. 2 Samuel 11, 26 and 27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. I would say that David thought that's where the verse ended. But there's one more sentence at the end of that verse. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I, I don't know if this will sound like a foreign concept to you or if it will challenge your view of grace. It's something we actually addressed like week one or two in the series. Um, but grace loves us enough to confront our sin. God cares about his kids too much to leave us sitting in our sin. He will confront us on it. And God saw everything that had happened. He never stopped loving David, but he was displeased about what had taken place. And he was about to do something about it. So when we roll over to chapter 12, Nathan the prophet shows up. And what I love about this story is, when, when God confronts us with our sin, when grace shows up to confront our sin, God's desire is to bring us to a place of understanding if we will allow him to, uh, to understand what we've done in our condition. So what does Nathan do? Does he show up and say, I know what you did? No. He invites David into the story by showing up and saying, hey, I got to tell you about a guy. There's this guy that had all the sheep he could possibly have. He's like the richest guy in town, had every sheep on the hill. And there was this one poor guy in town that all he had was this one little lamb. And that lamb was so special to him and his family that he raised it, cared for it, basically nursed it right there in his own house. It played among his kids. And then one day, a passerby came to town to visit the rich man. And the rich man didn't want to waste one of his own sheep to feed him. So he stole the one sheep that that guy had to slaughter it, to feed a meal to his friend that came to town. And he ends the story. And David, Mr. Justice, is furious. And so David passes judgment on the man in this story. 2 Samuel 12, verses 5 and 6. 
Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. It's amazing to me how insiders in God's kingdom who blow it can be the most angry, vindictive, judgmental people there are when we're the ones that have received God's grace and need it still. I mean, this is a story for today. This isn't some random moment in time and it's just David's story. Some of the people most needing grace are the ones that are the most judgmental of others. And David's no different. So he passes judgment. And I mean, Nathan's response is so direct and so brutal and cuts right to the core. And the sentence ends with an exclamation point. He says, you're the man. Just like that, right back at him. You're the man. And I mean, David just gets quiet. It's like a punch in the face. And then Nathan tells him and unpacks everything he had done. You did this, 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 and this, and it led to this. You're the man. And because you did that, what you've done in secret is going to happen to you in public. There's consequences for what happened. Your house will be at war with each other. Your sons and you will have, have fighting going on. And in fact, what you did in private with somebody else's wife other people are going to do very publicly with your wives. There's direct consequences for what happened. There's fallout. Listen, I hope, I hope you don't miss what happens next. David's response in 2 Samuel chapter 12, just the beginning part of verse 13. David hears all of this. He heard the story. He realizes it's him. He's heard the consequences. And David said to Nathan... I have sinned against the Lord, period. Period. Not let me explain myself. Not let me make excuses. If you only understood the pressure I was under, how hard it is to lead these people, I slipped up and stumbled. No excuses, no explanation. No blubbering to get out of the consequences. How often do we mistake repentance for us just trying to get out of trouble? Saying, I'm sorry, oh, please don't do that is not repentance. That's just trying to escape the consequences of the mistake that we made. And he does none of that. He just owns it. I have blown it. I've sinned against God. That's it. That's a heart of repentance that gets real and honest about where I stand and what I've done. That doesn't try to talk myself out of the consequences of it and it doesn't try to make excuses for why I did it in the first place. Just honesty and humility to say, you're right. I blew it. 